Good morning. My name is Harry Shields. If you're tuning in for the first time, I am the interim pastor here at uh, Winnetka Bible Church, and I'm honored to be able to minister to you this morning and to this wonderful congregation. I discovered something this week as I was making preparation for this message. I discovered that there is a debate of, of sorts that's going on amongst grammarians, and here's what the debate is. The debate is, uh, the word why, should it be considered uh, an interrogative adverb or an interrogative pronoun? If you're like me, you're not going to get involved in the debate, but I found it interesting nonetheless. What I do know about the word why is that why is used almost every single day of the week by everyone on planet Earth. And we use why in a variety of different contexts. If you are a parent this morning, uh, no doubt you have heard the word why, especially if you have a child somewhere between the age of two and four. Imagine this scenario. Um, a little boy goes into the kitchen. The mother is working frantically at the counter trying to get food ready, and he climbs up on one of the chairs. He looks at the woman on the other side of the table where they're working, and he says, Mommy, what you doing? And she says, um, I'm uh, preparing food for dinner. And he says, why? And she says, well, we have to eat today. You're hungry, aren't you? And he says, why? And then she says, well, daddy's going to be home in about an hour. And so we have to get food ready for dinner so daddy can eat, you can eat, and I can eat. And he looks at her and he says, why? It's the nurturing of a little philosopher, but if you are a parent of someone who's always asking why, it can drive you crazy. But it helps a child to learn because they have to ask questions, and many times they will answer or ask the question, why? Uh, why is this going on? Why is this happening? If you are a married individual, you probably have also used the term why. Uh, imagine this scenario. It's late in, in the spring, and um, happens to be that the wife, she gets up from her favorite chair in the living room, and she says, does it feel cold in here, or is it just me? And she starts to walk towards the thermostat, and she said, wait a minute, you didn't turn the thermostat down again, did you? Why did you do that? The husband pauses for a few moments, and he says, why don't you care more about our utility bills? Couples can exchange the word why all the time. Citizens in our culture, people like you, no doubt will ask the question why. You might be saying, why do we have to stay indoors all the time? Why can't someone come up with a cure for this virus? Why do we have all of these regulations that are presented against us? As citizens, we use why all the time. This morning, I'd like to take that term, why, and I'd like to focus on a specific context, a context of faith. And the context of faith goes something like this. Many times, if we respond to the call of God as we hear it in Scripture, as we hear it through the Spirit of God, we will sometimes ask the question, why? In times like this, we ask why. For example, uh, we might be saying, why is it that a God who is loving good, gracious, kind, merciful, why does he allow his people to experience 
difficult times, hardships, problems. Why does a good God allow that to take place? And so we ask that sort of question all all the time, especially as people of faith, and we need an answer. And God is giving us an answer this morning. One answer among many answers, but one that we need to heed and one that we need to know about. Now that answer is going to be given to us if we go back to Egypt. Now I say that because of the fact that uh, we are in a sermon series right now that we are calling Out of Egypt. It's basically a sermon series that is looking at the people of Israel, not only their birth and their growth, but the people of Israel who ended up in bondage in Egypt, and ultimately, they came out of Egypt. How did that happen? One of the things that we are discovering is that the book of Exodus is not just about human beings, not just about the people of Israel or the people of Egypt. It's really a story about God. In every chapter, the veil is pulled back, and we begin to discover more and more about the living God and what He is doing in human history. So we go back to Egypt. We go back to Exodus to discover why is it that this good God, this merciful God, allows us to experience trouble in life. Now, in order to find the answer, uh, here's what we need to do. We need to basically say, what is this text In Exodus chapter 5, what is it doing? We're basically looking at the passage. And then we're going to find, after we look at what is going on in the passage, we're going to discover a principle. What is it that God wants us to know? And then ultimately, we're going to try to take that principle and say, how is it that we can practice that principle in life? So so here's what we're doing. Uh, You need to know uh, where we're going so you can hang your thoughts on these three things passage, what's going on in the passage, principle, what is God trying to teach us, and then how do we practice this principle in our lives. So let's start with the passage. As we look at this passage, we have to put it in its context, and I basically want you to make two observations with me. Those observations, I'm going to give them a title. We're going to look at the evolution of unbelief. I'm using the term evolution in terms of development, not necessarily as a scientific term or description, but I'm using it in terms of the evolution, the development of unbelief and how it impacts people. And then the other observation we are going to make has to do with the revelation of God, all right? The evolution of unbelief and the revelation of God. Now, with respect to... um, the unbelief that we see in this passage, it is a progressive sort of thing. Now, I said just a moment ago, we need to look at the context and what is taking place. Uh, In fact, we need to go back to uh, Exodus uh, chapter 4. Last week, one of our elders, Rohan Johnson, presented a wonderful message uh, on uh, Exodus chapter 4. And one of the things we discovered in that passage is that God Uh, appears to Moses. Moses is a bit reluctant to become the mouthpiece of God, uh, the leader on God's behalf. And so he has all of these protests, and God gives him signs. And we discovered that uh, ultimately Moses gives in. He's reluctant, but he gives in, decides that he's going to do what God is asking him to do. He's going to go back to Egypt, and he's going to speak to Pharaoh. However, we discover that uh, Moses meets up with his brother Aaron, and they go back together to the elders in Egypt, and they speak to them. Something interesting happens at the end of Exodus chapter 4. 
I want you to notice verse 30. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people, listen to this, and the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed down and worshiped. Now notice that. They heard, they believed, they worshiped. In other words, the people were excited about the fact that God was coming to deliver them. So chapter 5 begins with a sense of hope. Now, we do not know how much time transpired between the end of Exodus 4 and the beginning of Exodus chapter 5. But keep in mind, the people, even Moses himself, is probably anticipating something that is good. And then all of a sudden... Moses and Aaron and the people around them, they are confronted with unbelief. It starts with the unbelief of Pharaoh. It's what I'm going to call communication of unbelief. Here's why I say that. I want you to notice what happens in the first two verses of Exodus chapter 5. Afterward, key word, that word afterward connects us with the end of uh, Exodus chapter 4. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. And then comes the Pharaoh's response. He's going to communicate something. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. Now, before you are too critical of Pharaoh, keep in mind, the Pharaoh had many gods. He had fertility gods. He had gods of harvest. He had gods of rain. Uh, He had gods of power. The, The Pharaoh believed in many different gods, and he had not yet learned about Yahweh, the God of the Israelites. And so, it's only natural for him to say, I I don't know this God. I don't know if this God can do anything. And by the way, you Israelites, what do you have? What would you want to follow a God that hasn't really done much for you? All of that is going to change, but we start the evolution of unbelief. In fact, he communicates he's not going to let the people go, and he does something else in his communication process. Drop down to verse 6, and this is what we read. The same day, the Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, you shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. Now, you may not yet understand why straw was used in this whole process, but in the ancient world, there would be these huge mud pits, clay pits, And the Israelites, no doubt, they crawled into those pits. They would begin to stomp around to to make a a sort of slush, and and straw would be thrown in. What the straw would do as bricks were formed out of that mush, it would provide a strengthening factor. Acid was released with inside all of the bricks to bind them together so that the bricks would be stronger. And the Egyptians, apparently, had been providing the straw. And Pharaoh, in his unbelief, he communicates the fact No longer is that going to be given. So you see, unbelief in his own mind begins to be communicated to the people and the people who are following them. It's the unbelief of Pharaoh. Now that begins to transfer, to evolve into another kind of unbelief. It's the implementation of unbelief, and it comes from the taskmasters. 
Now, you're going to hear about two different kinds of individuals. You're going to hear a reference to taskmasters, and then you're going to hear a reference to foremen. The taskmasters, note, um, apparently were uh, Egyptian leaders. They were the harsh people who carried the whips and the clubs to make sure that the Hebrews were doing all that they were being asked to do. And the foremen were Hebrews themselves. They communicated what the taskmasters, what the Pharaoh wanted, and they communicated that to the Israelites as well. And, and what happens is these taskmasters pick up and they implement the unbelief that's coming from Pharaoh. We see this beginning in verse 10. Notice what our text says. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get your straw yourselves wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout the land. That word scattered is an interesting word because it was used also of, of straw. After straw had been harvested, it was scattered. It was blown throughout the land. And here are these Hebrews, almost as if they are being blown throughout the land so that they can gather more straw and bring it back. It's making conditions for them even harder. Unbelief on Pharaoh's part is now being implemented by the taskmasters and by the foremen upon the people. But there's a third kind of unbelief. Not just uh, is unbelief being communicated and is it being implemented, but we discover that unbelief is being experienced in very harsh ways. Would you drop down to verse 15 and notice what our text says. <clears throat> then the foreman of the people of Israel came and cried out to Pharaoh, why do you treat your servants like this? And so it's the Hebrews who are coming back and they are now complaining to the Pharaoh. They are experiencing the harsh conditions and they don't know what it is that they're going to do. So they start to complain. They had access to Pharaoh himself and they make their complaints known. It's the experiencing, the complaining, the lamenting that people often do when they are in harsh, difficult times. I ask the question again that I asked at the outset, why? If, if God is good, if God is gracious and merciful and kind and loving, why does God allow this sort of thing? So that leads us to um, a fourth kind of unbelief because what we discover is that unbelief not only starts and, and is communicated and implemented and it's experienced along the way, but somewhere along the line, someone becomes the brunt of unbelief. And that's Moses and Aaron. Look at what is being said round about uh, verse 21. And they said to them, that is the uh, Israelite foreman, they say to Moses and Aaron who are standing waiting for them after they came out of their presence with favor. Here's what they say. The Lord look on you and judge because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh. They're basically saying, Moses and Aaron, it's all your fault. And so Moses is taking upon himself all of, uh, of this pain, the pain of unbelief that's being communicated and implemented and it's being experienced, and now he himself is the brunt of it. But notice what Moses does in verse 22. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O oh Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. Twice. Moses says, why? Well, why have you allowed this to happen, God? Same question we're asking this morning. Uh, why these harsh conditions? Why have they come upon us? It is the 
evolution of unbelief. And now, there's a bit of a turn in, in our story. And it's what I'm calling the revelation of God. Right up against this evolution of unbelief, we begin to see that God says something. And it's in the first verse of chapter 6. Uh, in a couple of weeks, we're going to be hearing more from uh, Exodus chapter 6. But just look at, at, at chapter uh, 6 and verse 1. This is what it says. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. Did you notice the wording that Moses uses? Because I understand Moses is the author of the book of Exodus. It starts with the word but. There's a contrast that's being given. Up against all of this unbelief, God now begins to reveal himself. But the Lord, Yahweh, the God who's going to be the delivering God, he begins to speak. It says, now, at this point in time, even when you think all is lost, now I'm going to act. And he says, you shall see, you shall see with your own eyes what I am going to do. And he talks about the fact that God is going to do something to Pharaoh so that Pharaoh, in turn, will drive the people out of Egypt. Unbelief followed by the revelation of God. Now, this is significant because I said to you, we're going to look and see what is going on in this passage. And we see unbelief, it's progressive, and then we begin to see that God discloses himself. And in that disclosure, there is a principle that you and I will want to take with us into the rest of our lives. I have no idea what you are experiencing in your life right now in spite of and in addition to this terrible virus that is going around the world. Uh, here's what I want you to hear above and beyond everything else. It's about God. It's the fact that God is working in your problems to display His great power. God is working in your struggles to put on display His mighty strength. Consider this. Imagine that uh, you went to one of the theaters in downtown Chicago. Uh, I know we can't do that right now, but imagine sometime whenever the quarantine is lifted and you decide that you're going to go down to the theater, eventually go to a play. And for some reason, you have some access that no one else has. And so you, you go in on a Monday morning and you start to look at all of the actors on the stage. And one of the things you see that they're doing is they're standing in different places. They might hold a book, the script, and they start to read the script, and the director will stop them. And, and then maybe some stagehands will bring props onto the stage, and you'll be watching, and you'll be listening, and, and people will change places at different times. And you'll say to yourself, what in the world is going on here? This seems like a lot of confusion. But you watch a while longer, and then you decide you need to get on with your day. Several days later, opening night comes, and you go to the theater. And you sit down in your seat, you look at the program, and finally the curtain comes up, and the play begins to unfold. And after several moments, you begin to say, now it all makes sense. I, I understand what's going on here. Uh, everything is right where it is supposed to be because you have a much bigger picture. This is one of the things that God does for us. He gives us the scriptures. He gives us the book of Exodus so that we might see God. And you and I might know that God is working in our problems to display his great power. Now, if that's true, and it is, 
Uh, what do we need to do about that? How do we practice a principle like this one in our lives? I'd like to ask a couple of more questions. One of the questions we need to ask is, is how is God working and putting his power on display? And then we'll say, uh, what is it that we need to do in response to that display of power? So how is it that God is displaying his great power? In many different ways. Imagine that your life is like a a stage where a play is beginning to unfold and the drama of redemption is being portrayed before us. We see that God is displaying his power in a couple of different ways. Uh, God, for example, is displaying uh, his great love. I call your attention to um, Romans chapter 5 and verse 8. Listen to what it says. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I find it intriguing that the verse is, but God shows, God shows. I might have read it there as though it was in the past tense, but it's actually a present tense where it's saying God is showing, God is showing right now his love for us. How is he doing that? Every time we consider the person and work of Jesus Christ, God says, I love you, and he sent Jesus into the world while we were sinners, while we were deserving of the wrath of God. God shows us his love in Jesus Christ, and he's doing that all the time. Every single day of the week, God is showing. God is showing his love. But God's also doing something else. God is transforming us as well. I say that because of a passage that we go to quite frequently, and it's in Romans chapter 8. I know you've heard this passage before, but consider it again. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for the good for those who are called according to His purpose. Let's not read verse 28 without verse 29, for it says, for those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that he, that is Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. So here's what's happening. Uh, God is working to show love to people everywhere. And the Spirit of God quickens those who look at the love of God in Jesus Christ, and God draws them to himself so that by faith they might trust Jesus And in doing so, they escape the wrath of God from their lives. But for those who come to him, God's doing something else. He's using all kinds of things, including our hardships, including our problems, to transform us to become more and more like Jesus Christ. You see, God is working. He's working right now. He's working in your problems. He's working in your hardships to display his great power. And so we need to know that he is showing that power both by demonstrating his love and drawing people to himself, and those he draws to himself, he conforms us to be more and more like Jesus Christ. That brings me to the other thing we need to ask this morning in light of this principle, and that is, what do we need to do to practice it? How do we respond to God's great love? Well, uh, one of the things that we need to do is that we need to Uh, review. I say that because I want you to notice that in Exodus chapter 5, it says afterwards Moses went. uh, He went to Pharaoh. He delivers the message that God wants him uh, to give. And then all of a sudden, uh, Pharaoh uh, responds negatively. He responds with evil. And so, as I said earlier, there's an evolution of unbelief. There, There is despair on the part of the people And where does review come into all of this? What if Moses 
would have gone back to what uh, God told him in Exodus chapter 3 and verse 19. If he would have reviewed that and remembered. Uh, what I mean by that, God said, um, this is what you're going to say to Pharaoh. Oh, but by the way, Moses, Pharaoh's not going to listen to you. He's going to reject you. I just want you to know that ahead of time. This past week, several students, students from Winnetka Bible Church, they took final exams at their colleges and their seminaries. And one of the things they probably did is that they wanted to do well in the course, they probably reviewed their notes, reviewed it one time, two times, several different times. They memorized different things, and they went back to it even before they went into the exam room or took the test on, on, online. That's what students do. They have to review information in order to repeat that information and ultimately to live by it. And that's what you and I must do as well. In the midst of our hard times, even before that, we need to be reviewing what God has revealed about himself in his word. And one of the things that we know is that he has revealed to us that there is a great Savior. His name is Jesus who came into the world, and God is showing right now his love for us. And we need to review that. His love for us in Jesus so that we might know him and follow him. So the first thing we do with this principle is that we need to review. There's a second thing I think that we need to do, and that is we need to intercede. That is, we need to pray in the midst of our hardships. I call your attention again to verse 22. There, there's an interesting word. I don't want us to miss it. Then Moses turned to the Lord. And then he begins to speak. He, he's praying to the Lord. But notice that he turns to the Lord. Now, that was the right thing to do. The wrong thing happened whenever uh, Moses begins to complain. Lord, Lord, you're not doing anything. You said you were going to do this. He failed to review what was happening. And so now... Uh, he starts to intercede, he starts to talk to the Lord, and he pours out his lament, his concerns about what is taking place. What I'm trying to say to you at this point is that we want to learn from this experience from Moses, and we will want to intercede in the midst of our hardships. Now consider what the Scriptures say about the one to whom we are to intercede, the Lord God. Moses did the right thing. He turned to the Lord, and we need to do that as well. But I call your attention to a passage in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. This is what it says. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. He's talking about our high priest. Uh, Jesus the Christ. He's saying, this writer, that, that we can turn to Jesus. We can go to God through Jesus who will be interceding for us. But here's something that's even more significant. Verse 16 says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So what's the problem you're facing? What's the hardship that you're going through? And in that, you might say, why, Lord, why are you doing this? Why have you allowed this to happen? What we need to do is to intercede, to go to the Heavenly Father through the Savior, our high priest, Jesus Christ, and we will find that he is there to help us, to help us in our time of need. Are you doing that? It's like the little child, the little toddler who, who, 
stumbles and falls and they face an injury and a parent will run to them or a grandparent and, and what will take place is the toddler will hold the hands up as if help me, help me right now. That's the image that we need to think about in our own lives. We need to run to the Heavenly Father through Jesus and in doing so, help. Help me right now. Give me direction. Give me insight. Show me what to do. You see, God is working in your problems to display His great power. And so we need to review uh, how God has been working and know what He is doing. And then the other thing, we need to intercede. One other thing that we need to do, and that is we need to refocus. Because you see, in the midst of hardships, life becomes distracting. And often our minds are taken away from things we should be focusing on, and we end up focusing more on the problem. Call your attention again to Exodus uh, chapter 5. I find this interesting because uh, after God has revealed himself in chapter 6 in verse 1, from uh, verse 2 all the way through to I think it's uh, verse 9, we see that God says this, I am the Lord. He says that four times. I am the Lord. Moses, you might have these complaints. The people of Israel might uh, be focusing on their hardship, but I want you to refocus your attention because I am the Lord. That that could basically be saying, I am the Lord. I'm in control. (laughs) I have charge of everything. I'm the one that's going to deliver you. And that's what we need to refocus on as well. God is going to be there to help us in our time of need. So we intercede, we review who he is, we review his character, and then we focus on who he is and what he wants to do through us because our lives are like a stage play in which God is working out this wonderful drama of redemption. There's one thing I'm concerned about before I close this morning. And that's the fact that some of you who are watching this message may say, uh, you know, Harry, I'm not buying into this. And let me tell you why. Because I've known people that have had faith and they have trusted God in the midst of their hardship and, and they've ended up dying. Or maybe you could remind me of missionaries who've gone to other parts of the world and they ended up losing a child, losing a spouse, maybe even losing their own life. So I'm not sure that God's always demonstrating his great power. I beg to differ. Our Lord, the Savior, had announced to his disciples prior to John chapter 14 that he'd be going up to Jerusalem, he would be arrested, he would die on a cross, but on the third day he'd be raised from the dead. And in their despair in John chapter 14, Jesus spoke to them. He said, I am going away. I'm going away so that I can prepare a place for you so that when I come again I can take you to be with me so that you might be where I am now here's the interesting thing about that Jesus is anticipating something yes he's going to come again for them but he says I'm going to take you because I have prepared a place for you the implication is that this life is not our ultimate destiny no our ultimate destiny is to be with the Lord Jesus Christ Now, if you stop and think about that, that calls us to make a decision. Either we choose to follow Christ or we reject Him. And for those who choose to follow Him, put their faith and trust 
in the finished work of Jesus Christ. He promises that one day we will be with him. That is, death will not hold us because the power of the living Christ, the power of the living God will be displayed through us in giving us eternal life. The other thing that you may be saying today, so what do I do next? Some of you already know Jesus. For those of you who do not, my appeal to you today is if you've never trusted Jesus the Christ, the Spirit of God may be speaking to you right now, reminding you that like me, you are a sinner desperately in need of a Savior. Jesus is the only Savior. If you've never trusted Him, will you trust Him today? And for those of us who have trusted Jesus as our Savior, let us turn and refocus on Him, realizing that God's using our hardships. He's putting us on display before other people and then through us in a variety of different ways, in life and maybe even in death, He's showing His great power through us. Heavenly Father, we would ask that you would teach us this truth. Holy Spirit, burn this truth deep within our hearts and our minds today so that no matter what we might face in the days ahead, we will walk in confidence with you. We praise you and thank you for your word, and we do so in Jesus' name. Amen.